0: our news daily thanks so much for being here we have 12 segments of the show that we do every day and uh they're all you know they're all good i hope i think so so when in doubt i don't know what, what, which one do we put here when in doubt we just do the first one here's the opening of the show Tomorrow, like a Republican Party debate, and I don't even know if Vivek and Chris Christie are going to make the stage. It could be a debate. It could be Nikki Haley and and DeSantis debating. Who knows? And who could possibly even care? I know. I got. Does anyone? Is there anyone who could possibly care? Trump is up forty-four to seventeen. In Iowa so Trump isn't even having a counter event so the first debate when well, it was all exciting like oh how's everyone gonna do and and Trump did that the interview with uh, Tucker right and then the second debate he oh he went to that uh, manufacturing plant that auto manufacturing plant because there was the the car strike, auto worker strike in Michigan so that was like a thing and then he did an event in Miami next to the debate that was that was in Miami And he's not even doing one now (laughs) because this is how these ridiculous these debates are. He's it's so over. If he has a counter event, it's not distracting people from the debate that's taking place. It would actually give the debate more attention because if he does a thing, people like, Oh, why is he doing a thing? Oh, it's a counter to the debate. There's a debate. Oh, right. So it, it gives it more attention than it should even get. Does that make, does that make sense? So he's just, he's just doing nothing. I think he's a private fundraiser or something. So it's like a normal Wednesday. That's how over it is. So you're like, well, why do we keep doing these? I was talking to Boyle yesterday. And I guess the story is the RNC, the Republican National Committee, they're going to keep doing them. There, there may be a couple more. And they need to keep doing them so that they don't lose control over them and have other people swoop in and do their own debates. So they, they need to keep control because I guess there's some rule that if, if you want, if you're a candidate and you want to be invited to the formal debates, the RNC debate, you can't do a different debate hosted by someone else. So they have to keep doing official debates. So that they can maintain their own power over them in the future. So it's not about this election; it's about future elections in in the future, future elections. It's about elections, uh, debates in the future. Then so there's no there's no reason for them. The RNC knows there's no reason for them. The TV stations know there's no reason for them. The candidates like I can't imagine like Ron DeSantis thinks a like I don't like like there's no purpose for these things at all. But alas, there is one. I don't... Uh, do I have to watch it? Do I, uh, I guess I do. It's kind of my job. Uh, part of my job also is to read all of these editorials that are written against Donald Trump. That all of them m- magically came out yesterday. Is this a coordinated effort? I don't know. Maybe. Doesn't really matter. Uh, it, it's all... To an extent, coordinated. So check this out. CNN, Trump is showing how a second term would rewrite the rules of presidential power. The Atlantic, David Frum, the danger ahead. If Donald Trump returns to the White House, he'd bring a better understanding of the system's vulnerabilities, more willing enablers, and a more focused agenda of retaliation against his adversaries. Jeffrey Goldberg, also in the Atlantic, headline: A warning. Okay, do you see? You see a, set, a theme here. America survived the first Trump term, though not without sustaining serious damage. A second term, if there is one, will be much worse. I don't know what the damage was in the first term. Do you know? Do you know any damage? What serious damage took place? Do you know of any serious damage? Can you name one? one point of serious damage from Donald Trump's first term in office. That's in the Atlantic as well. New York Times, these all came out the same day. New York Times, why a second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first. Donald Trump has long exhibited authoritarian impulses. That's such a great line, authoritarian impulses. Like Barack Obama doesn't, didn't. Or Gavin Newsom doesn't. They don't have authoritarian impulses. But don't tell me about the authoritarian impulses. Tell me the authoritarian thing. Right? What authoritarian thing did he do? Ah, well, he's long exhibited the impulses. Hmm. But his policy operation is now more sophisticated. And the buffers to check him are weaker. Ah. Washington Post. A Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. A a Trump dictatorship. All right, so we got CNN, The Atlantic, two in one day, New York Times, Washington Post, all with the exact same message. The exact same message. Follow that up here with James Carville on Bill Maher.
1: I don't think he can hold his party together. Second of all, you're exactly right. Mike Johnson and what he believes is one of the greatest threats we have today to the United States. When I'm I, talking I, about I, I promise you, I know these people. Well, you're talking I, about Christian nationalism. Absolutely. This is a, a bigger <clears throat> threat than Al-Qaeda to this country. They, and let me tell you something. They have Speaker of the House. They got probably at least two Supreme Court justices, maybe more. Right? Don't kid yourself. And, and people in the press have no idea who this guy is, how he was formed, what the threat is, and this is a fundamental threat to the United States. It is a fundamental don't the <laughs> <laughs> They don't believe in the Constitution. They don't believe in the That's
0: the thing we most believe in. But you, that's like the number. Well, I mean, it's like the number two or three thing. But it's it's one of the things we they don't believe. It. They never say what the threat is. Not interesting. They are oh, huge threat. Why? Well, you know, they actually believe that the that God, Jesus came to Earth. You know, Christmas. They believe Christmas is what they actually believe. They believe Christmas like for the reasons we have. The reason we have Christmas, they believe that. And, you know, that's crazy. My friend Jesse Kelly, he said, don't get mad at James Carville for, first of all, saying how they all feel. And, two, properly preparing his people mentally. This is all part of it. This is all part of the fear-mongering. This is all part of the rallying. This is all part of the justification for violence. Language leads to mindset. Mindset leads to performance. We are fighting liberals. They are fighting terrorists. See the difference? James Carville says, You are a bigger th- you are you are a bigger threat to this nation than Al Qaeda. You are a bigger threat. You, you, you waking up early. Like yesterday we had a three hour conversation on the importance of trade schools and, and like working class jobs. And you know, like what is the American dream? Ah, oh, the American dream is, uh, living a life of virtue. <laughs> like you're, you're the threat. You're a bigger threat than America. Like last week we talked about, uh, Oh, like the importance of, uh, small towns and, and, uh, beautiful architecture and small towns and you know like that that was that was our that was like the theme you're you're a threat you're a huge threat to this nation they say you don't believe in the constitution we'll talk more about this at eight o'clock but just so you know this all happened in the same 24-hour period this was all released and this is the next phase of attacking trump but really attacking you and it's it's a preparation phase this is not their last phase they still got a year they got a year to go. Until November. Until election, let's say eleven months, right? Until we vote. So they they have a few more phases to go. So this is prep for the next phase. Next like really like two phases or now, if I had to make a guess. So we'll talk more about that coming up at eight o'clock. Coming up in the next segment, I want to talk about Dave Hollis. Have you ever heard of this guy? And then uh, we'll do a quick segment on why women are converting to Islam. <laughs> what? What's that about? chat about that in a second. But first, Fulton County, Georgia. Do you remember the name Rayshard Brooks? Remember that name? He was a 27-year-old black man shot and killed by a police officer in Atlanta. They arrived after uh, they got a call that someone was sleeping in a car in the drive through lane. But you can't. Cause you're like, hey, there's a guy sleeping in a car. Like, I don't know. I've slept in a car before. And I, you know, like, take a little snooze. I don't know if that's called police worthy. But if you're in the drive-through lane, that's a bit of a problem. So the police came. They did a whole sobriety breathalyzer. It's a 41 minute long interaction. You can watch the whole video. 41 minutes long from the moment they knock on his window, and then uh, at the end they arrest him. They put him in handcuffs. And right before they, they're able to close the cuffs, he gets free. He doesn't want to go to jail. So he tries to get away. He grabs the officer's taser, and the officer kills him, shoots him and kills him. And the officer was cleared of any wrongdoing at all. It's all on video. And in the aftermath, naturally, there were riots. And that Wendy's in question, he was in the drive-thru. I didn't say Wendy's. Did I say when He was in a Wendy's drive-thru. So that Wendy's in question was burned to the ground, obviously, naturally. It would need to be. It's Dave Thomas's fault. So we gotta burn it to the ground. So someone took a video when it was being burned to the ground. Here's a video of it.
1: Look
2: at a white girl trying to burn down a Wendy's. This wasn't us. This wasn't us.
0: Okay, so there's a video of the girl of the girl lighting it on fire. Okay, so they arrested the two people response. There's two people. There's a white girl, white woman, and a and a black man. And they've pled guilty to conspiracy to commit arson and two counts of first degree arson. Okay, they pled guilty. They did it. I did it. You got me. All right, so before I tell you their punishment, I right, just want to ask a quick question to you. Why have you you listening right now? Why have you not burned a building to the ground in your life before? Oh, it's a serious question. Why have you not done this? I, mean, I get. I should just assume. Have you ever burned a building down? Have you ever? Okay. Why not? Why have you not burned a building down i I'm, I'm being very serious here. Why have you not done that? It's not yours. Good. It's good answer. Uh, that that's just destructive. Yes. Very good. Um. Dangerous. Absolutely. I bought. We put the wreaths out. Well, I should say this: first time in our life, we we like really decorated for Christmas. I don't know what took us so long; it was busy. But we're like, no, we're gonna do it. We're gonna decorate for Christmas. So we put a wreath up in every window. And I go up to the kids' room, and the their windows don't open. They don't have a. This is our. We just bought this house. They don't have the windows. They don't open from the inside. So like, what? What the heck? What in the world? I mean, they don't open from the inside. So now I got. I want to go buy a ladder. So I bought a twenty foot ladder, to get to the windows from the outside. You would think, uh, I'm like parachuting without a parachute. You think I'm jumping out? Of, like people are acting like a twenty foot ladder is the most dangerous thing in the history of the world. Oh, be careful! Like, like I, I, I regret I told my mom. She hasn't slept in days. She calls me every twenty minutes. Have you gotten on the ladder yet? Like, no, mom, I haven't. Att- like people are like that's the most dangerous thing in the world to get on a ladder anyway speaking of danger it's dangerous to light a wendy's on fire that's a good reason one reason those are those are all true absolutely one reason i've never lit a building on fire is because i'm pretty sure that would be the end of my life if i burned a building to the ground i like, i think i'd go to jail for decades I, I i would i'd go to jail i'd miss every aspect of my kids growing up I'd miss my entire life with my wife. I'd lose everything. If I burned a building to the ground, I'd lose it all. There'd be nothing left. My whole life would be over. You get one life. You get one life, and mine would be in jail because I committed arson. What are you in for? I'd lit a building on fire. Oh, you idiot. Why'd you do that? Uh, There'd be no justification. It wouldn't matter. There's no justification for lighting a building on fire, and that would be the end of my life. So that's at the root of it. Well, I guess maybe not the root, but one of the main reasons why I've never lit a building on fire is because I'd go to jail forever and my life would be over. But these two people did. They lit, they were very, oh, crime of passion. They're very, very upset at Sean, Ray Rayshard Brooks getting shot. So the Wendy's on fire and they pled guilty to it. So what's their punishment? $500 fine, 150 hours of community service and five years of probation, which uh, probations just don't light another building on fire in the next five years. A $500 fine what do you mean a 500 I, a couple of years ago I went through a like a red light at a, a like you know like, like the light it's one of those lights where you're like oh what, what do I do I don't know ah! it was red and the traffic light got me I think that was a $600 ticket these people lit a Wendy's on fire and they got a $500 fine now, I don't know if it was each. I don't know if it was 500. Probably 500 each. $1,000. Now, worth noting, this is the same Fulton County, Georgia, where Donald Trump had you know 13 felony charges and is facing 76 and a half years in prison. And it hit me that this is the same Fulton County, Georgia, when I was reading the article and it quoted Fannie Willis. And I was like, Fannie Willis? That name sounds that's her. So, here's what the local DA says about this. You would think the local DA... You want to make sure you live in an area where your DA says, hold on, hold on. You can't light buildings on fire and pay a $500 fine. $500 fine is like you didn't pick up your dog's number two in the park or something. I, I don't know, $500 fine, what is that? So here's what she said. She said, I think this indictment is particularly important. It sends a message that we are a community that supports protesting. Indeed, we certainly know it's one of your constitutional rights. But what we do not tolerate is violent protests. It is unacceptable to burn down a building in our community, even in the name of protest. I don't know. I feel like it's acceptable. I feel like a $500 fine shows that this is very acceptable to do. I... Went through a red light by one second, five hundred dollar ticket. These two burned down a Wendy's, five hundred dollar ticket. But then, I think the thing that gets me here is that these people, the, the DA and stuff, they then turn around and tell us that like this is like hardball. This is a hardball. Oh, we really, really, we're really cracking down on burning buildings down. We really, we won't accept unacceptable. No, you totally accept it. She says, I'm very proud of the law enforcement agencies. They spent a lot of time scouring over thousands of hours, literally a video, to make sure they had the right people in this case. What do you mean it's on video? I found it on Twitter in like 10 seconds. There she is. That's her. $500, okay. How many man hours, let's, let's, tell you, let's say she's right, oh, so, many t- so much time, literally thousands of hours of video. All right, how many man hours were spent tracing these two down to give them a $500 fine and then come back and tell you, oh, really cracking down? It's unacceptable. No, nope, pretty acceptable. Let me give you another one. This one's in Germany, uh, but this is all, listen, Europe's just a little bit ahead of us. Back in 2020, same time, 11 men raped a 15-year-old girl. The 15-year-old girl was attending a party in Germany's Hamburg Park when she was allegedly dragged into the bushes and raped by 11 men. Two of the men were acquitted, nine were found guilty, but only one of the nine received a prison sentence. That 19-year-old defendant received only two years and nine months in prison. The other eight defendants all received youth sentences of one to two years, which were all suspended under Germany's preliminary probation law. They got zero. No, no, no punishment. And the worst was two years. This is a great line. The, uh, the German outlet noted that the 11 indicted suspects represented a range of nationalities. Four were German, and then they were from Kuwait, Poland, Egypt, Libya, and Iran. A range of nationalities. So don't go blaming any one nationality, okay? They're from a range of nationalities. Okay, my follow-up question is: Were they from a range of religions? Was there a Buddhist and a Hindu, and a Sikh, and a Rastafarian? I don't know what like what other. Was there from a range of religions? Just one. Was the just one? Probably just one. It's probably just one. A range of nationalities. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't assume. Now. Before you think I'm reading into this and assuming more than I should, how about this sentence? A female psychiatrist testifying on behalf of the defendants Hmm. argued that their alleged gang rape was quote, a means of releasing, is a quote, means of releasing frustration and anger stemming from their migration experiences and sociocultural homelessness. Sociocultural homelessness. That's different because that that's not even they're not even homeless. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're homeless. Are you are you are they actually homeless or are they socioculturally homeless meaning they're not in their home country. I'd like to resolve their sociocultural homelessness by the way. We could solve that pretty quickly by sending them back to their sociocultural home. But they have Uh, A lot of anger. A lot of anger. Frustration because of their migration experience. So, how could they not rape a girl? You know? How could they not? Really, really this crime was the German people's fault. For not being more welcoming to these outsiders. Do you remember back in the day... A woman would get sexually assaulted and and people would say, mm, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't dress like a hooker at 2 AM in a dark alley and get super drunk. And people would, Oh, you can't blame the woman. How dare you? You're victim blaming. Remember that? This is a this is a whole new level. This is you're blaming the entire country for the behavior of these eleven people. It's all of Germany's fault. It's all and it's not it's all of the West's fault it's all of the west how much further can you go from the individual person being held responsible and accountable by saying it's western society's fault that this happened it's all of western society sorry 15 year old girl sorry 15 year old girl but how do they feel you know have you 15 year old girl have you considered the frustration they have about their socio-cultural homelessness No, I didn't think so. So that's where we are right now. This this is what will cause people to go berserk. This is the epitome of, it's going to get worse too, of, hold on. I follow the rules and get screwed. These people break the rules in Obvious and horrific ways And nothing happens That's what gets people very bitter Very bitter, very angry, very upset News Daily. this is such an incredibly important story this is a so at the end of the show we talked about these articles in the Washington Post and New York actually we talked about it in the opening segment and uh, one of the arguments is like oh like Trump the dictator is going to attack his political enemies <laughs> what are you guys kidding me? the Senate literally voted on it yesterday to do exactly that here's Ken Klukowski explaining so the left hates hates that Donald Trump put three supreme court justices or three people on the supreme court like and which is an amazing thing if you think about that <laughs> like what like the timing of that is just remarkable and uh, they they hate it hate it hate it so the left wants to pack the court add a bunch of people to it water down uh, the conservatives influence All right we had uh, you know we had uh, s- six Democrats to the court or six progressives then right then who cares about uh, Clarence Thomas but that's that's pretty hard to do so they decided that in the meantime the best course of action is not to pack the court but to reverse court pack reverse court pack what does that mean so their strategy is to go after the friends of the conservative supreme court justices and literally subpoena private citizens for merely being actual friends with people who happen to be on the Supreme Court, we'll get the update on that from Ken Kukowski, the Breitbart senior legal analyst. Ken, how you doing, sir?
2: Mike, okay, how are you, sir?
0: Good. Was I right with that intro?
2: It's uh, I I I categorize each of the justices separately. Uh, in terms of how I categorize each of the nine, but, but with, the, uh, with the caveat that I would get into a whole uh, uh, array of labels for each of the justices, each of whom have a slightly different way of looking at the law, uh, it's uh, the, the bigger takeaway point, absolutely. There are nine justices on the court. There have been for close to a century and a half. Uh, They tried to push legislation that would add seats so that they could add liberal justices until they got to a liberal majority. It just so happened that the number of justices they were trying to add would conveniently lead up to a liberal majority when that legislation didn't pass because the American people saw right through it the way they did in the 1930s when FDR attempted to do the same thing. Then they turned around and said, okay – who are the the justices that we don't like, with number one on their hit list being Clarence Thomas and number two on their hit list being Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas being the most committed what's called originalist on the Supreme Court, and Sam Alito being being every bit as principled, no question about that, just principles where he attaches – uh, greater significance to what's called stare decisis, or, or the role that precedent plays, than, uh, than, than Clarence Thomas. But both of them being 100% committed to what they see as the principles that the Constitution requires them to apply, those have been the number two, the number one and number two targets that Senate Democrats are trying to disqualify from the court to subtract the number of justices to seven mm. on key cases so that they can, in their mind at least, be, be on track to get a liberal majority out of the remaining justices. Yes, makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's their math. That's what they're doing. And reverse court packing uh, is the word that a number of people, including me, like to use for that cynical attempt to undermine our constitutional system of three separate co equal branches of government.
0: What is a subpoena and why? What, how does that hurt Clarence Thomas to subpoena a friend of his?
2: A, a subpoena, it's usually issued by a court, but it can also be issued by a congressional committee. A, sub, a, a subpoena or a subpoena, you know, under under penalty of law, is a command to appear before the body either either a court or a congressional committee to appear to provide either testimony or to provide documents or to apply both so it is legal compulsion it is what we call a compulsory measure uh, to uh, to force a person to participate as a witness in an official proceeding one that carries criminal penalties if you defy
0: are they looking for anything specific in these specific cases, or are they just looking for anything?
2: That's, that's a good question. Uh, in, in some of these instances, it looks like a fishing uh, expedition. But for some of the others, what, what you can tell they're getting as they're, uh, as they're attempting to subpoena private citizens is they're subpoenaing the uh, close longtime friends, of certain justices, again mainly Thomas and and Alito, uh, in an attempt to dig up what they would call grounds for recusal. So they're going after friends of theirs that they go on vacations with, that they have dinner with. Uh, it's uh, you know one is uh, one is a big uh, GOP mega donor. Who uh, uh, owns a place uh, up in uh, up in the northeast part of the country, a vacation home uh, that, uh, that that Justice Thomas has visited his friend on vacation up there. Uh, another is a, a, a fishing trip that uh, that Justice Alito had gone on uh, up in Alaska, and so you know, he's subpoenaing records from that person uh, in terms of being able to say. You know, oh, it's it's how many times have you had dinner with Justice Thomas or Justice Alito? Uh, who else was at the dinner? What did you guys discuss? But then beyond that, also trying to get like in, in terms of this uh, this GOP donor I'm I'm thinking of, trying to get 25 years of documents. I mean, you're talking about oh, things that would get into the details of travel and and finances and whatnot, all to try and find any sort of the kind of paper trail link that you have when you get together with your friends. You know, if you get together at one another's house for dinner, or if you meet at a restaurant or something like that, trying to get records on that so that you can say, okay, that person was with you. What were you talking about in trying to lay a, a disingenuous uh, paper trail to say, you know, I think that person is compromised. Yeah, I don't think they could be impartial. Uh, in the court, you know they should have to recuse from this case or from that case. Now understand by the way that the people we're talking about here, uh, like talking about uh, Federalist society co-chairman Leonard Leo, or GOP donor Harlan Crow to, to mention two of the people who by name are being targeted by these uh, subpoenas, uh, it, they don't have any business before the Supreme Court. You know, Harlan Crowe, who's who's a real estate guy, none of his business interests, you know, his, his real estate company, I mean, none of that's had any cases uh, before the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, and in the case of uh, Leonard Leo, you know, he runs a non-profit. It's a non committed to originalism, committed to, you know, interpreting the Constitution according to its original public meaning, which is how most Americans think you should interpret a written constitution to say, okay, what are the words of the Second Amendment? What are the words of the First Amendment? Well, what do those words mean? And whatever it means, that's what a court should do. Uh, it's, uh, he, too, uh, does not have business before the Supreme Court. So it's trying to make illegitimate the idea that justices have friends with, if you'll indulge me for just 20 more seconds, with applying a totally different standard to liberal justices, because the liberal justices, like, like a retired Justice Stephen Breyer, you know, the Pritzker family, uh, Governor uh, J.B. Pritzker of Illinois, you know, his family uh, owns a global hotel empire. You know, they flew Justice Breyer uh, on, their, on their private plane 17 times. Now, does anyone want to tell me that the state of Illinois never has a case before the U.S. Supreme Court? You know, Justice Breyer never recused for many of those cases, nor does anyone suggest that he should, because it's an issue of just because I'm friends with this family, just because I might have even flown on a plane that they own, you know, when the state of Illinois has a case before me. You know i i it's it's not this family that I'm adjudicating. they're not giving me any money for anything. Of course, I can sit on this case and I'll rule on according to what I believe the law is and that's what justice Breyer does that's what each of the nine justices. Do Or did in the case of a, of a retired justice like Stephen Breyer. So this is so this is the way the justices have lived their lives for for like ever since the Supreme Court was created. They've had friends, they visit friends, they have their own life. Uh, but none of that becomes a trigger to force their recusal. From hearing specific cases on the Supreme Court, that is what Senate Democrats are trying to set up through these subpoenas, but only targeting
0: conservative justices. Makes perfect sense. So it's it, it first is to try and find stuff that leads to the recusal, and then second, why not just harass friends of the justices just because you can? So we last talked about this. You were the only one who was was up on this before it was happening, and that's why we talked about it a bit. A, a lot of things was on Monday. Um, or maybe last. I forget when we talked about it first. Um, but we talked about it before. Dick Durbin and Sheldon Whitehouse, two Democrats, uh, were going to vote on whether or not to actually do it. And what was their final decision?
2: They voted to do it uh, last Thursday. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a business meeting in which they voted. And all the Republicans, by the way, walked out. So, I mean, there's an issue that this wasn't even valid under Senate rules, you know, their vote because uh, they, they, they didn't have the necessary uh, uh, makeup of senators seating at the table for the vote. They, for, the, for, the, for what appears to be the first time in American history, Uh, They have voted for a subpoena that has no – what's called a a legitimate legislative purpose or a valid legislative purpose. And that's where the Supreme Court has explained that Congress has incredibly broad subpoena power. But one thing that does have to be there for a subpoena to be lawful is it has to have a legislative purpose. That's why Congress has subpoena power is to get information – so that they can write laws, make laws, uh, and, uh, and in this case, the Senate Judiciary Committee had already written a bill to try to impose what they call an ethics code on the Supreme Court. You and I can just call it, you know, uh, a recusal trap code. Uh, it's uh, they had already voted that bill out to the full Senate floor. So their work in terms of crafting legislation, it was all done. As broad as that authority is. For, for, for a legislative purpose, uh, it, it, it was – even if it was there at some point, it's not there anymore. All of their fact-finding is done. All of their evidence-gathering is done. That bill is pending wow. on the Senate floor right so, now for so a no vote. So no need and to subpoena now that for that. that. They said, yeah, we're going to vote for the first time without any legislative purpose. We're going to vote to compel private citizens – to hand over their personal records like financial logs, social interactions, to turn that all over to Congress under penalty of law, we're going to vote to force them to do it today, and that's what they did.
0: That's unbelievable. Okay, so <clears throat> we talked about it before they voted on it because the Republicans, in, in their effort to re- rebuttal this, said, okay, if you do that, then we have 150 subpoenas lined up To go against the liberals on the court. That's right. And we're thinking like, oh, maybe that threat will cause the Democrats to rethink and we can just get back to normal. Uh, So now that the Democrats have done this, what have the Republicans done in response? Have they followed through? Well,
2: great question. And and we're going to find out just to give, you know, to remind our readers of a couple specifics. For example, a lot of people want to know. Uh, who was jeffrey epstein traveling with uh when uh you know y- y- all the rumors out there in terms of people that that he would uh uh you know take to that private island uh he owned where there were you know it, it, all of these indications of uh of of horrible things being done uh with with young women uh their underage women uh it's uh they want uh jeffrey epstein's travel logs, since, of course, you know, the, the, the U.S. government tracks uh, international travel. They want that. They, there's, a, there's another subpoena that would be seeking the GPS data from, from, from the cell phones being carried by Joe Biden and Hunter Biden on specific dates uh, in, in the past, uh, you know, where, where Republicans would love to know. Uh, where Joe and Hunter Biden were on certain days, with of course the growing scandals that we have regarding uh, uh, allegations of corruption—you know, millions of dollars coming in from you know the, 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 the Chinese communists and, uh, and a number of other sources. So you have this whole lineup of uh, of uh, of subpoenas that Republicans are are uh, w- could send from the House side. It looks like uh, all of that is still in process because, among other things, they're looking to see what's actually going to happen in terms of enforcing the subpoenas on the Senate side because on the Senate uh, – Senate, the Senate operates under different rules than the House, and on the Senate side, among other things – the enforcement of a subpoena after it's been issued, in terms of if a person defies a subpoena, and so you're looking to like enforce it with things that can eventually rise up to up to criminal penalties. Uh, y- y- you have to enforce it like on the floor of the full Senate, but most things on the Senate floor are subject to the filibuster rule, where if you have at least forty senators who are willing to stand their ground and say, we're not going to allow a vote on this. They can actually stop a vote from happening by just keeping talking. And just as long as the debate floor is open, just keep talking. You never get around to a vote. So right now, that appears to be the the two choices that are being looked at. It appears that a number of House Republicans are looking to see if Senate Republicans are just, going to, are just going to kill this thing on the floor of the Senate to prevent the enforcement of these unlawful subpoenas. Okay. And I think if they're doing so, House Republicans are still debating about whether to cross the Rubicon of launching their own subpoenas or if just killing it on the Senate floor uh w- would be sufficient at this time to try and pull congress back from the brink of becoming like a star chamber inquisition that just invades the the, the lives of private citizens yeah
0: this is such an important moment and and it's so important because everyone most people are going to miss it not not you and not our audience anymore but most people would miss this as an example i love to use the word star chamber miss this as an example of, of uh well like tyranny like i, I don't know like it's like, like just wildly inappropriate unconstitutional behavior from a
2: total abuse of power i mean it's it's you know but, but they have this incredibly broad power so that they can get information to pass laws and the constitution gives them that and every american should support that we want congress to have access to information you know they pass enough bad laws as it is just imagine how much worse so many of those laws would be if they couldn't even get like access to data and records to be able to figure out what words to put into the law on particular issues. So it's a vitally important power that they have there. But to have it weaponized against private citizens like this, where they turn your life inside out. 25 so years. Think of going after you imagine? their political enemies. And in this case, who people they consider their political enemies. And in this case, to try and, and destroy the independence of a separate branch of government. In doing so, yeah, a- absolutely. It's it, the, the fact that we're in this territory is just so dangerous for our constitutional republic. Mm-hmm.
0: Marsha Blackburn tried to get the uh, to subpoena the flight logs from Jeffrey Epstein, and she said Dick Durbin denied her request. Or I don't know. Do I guess that would mean to maybe put it up to a vote or something like that? So uh, they obviously don't want the other side, uh, the Republicans, to, to do anything in response to it. That's really amazing. Um, all right. Let's talk about some Supreme. Well, of course, follow that. No one's better than Ken on, uh, on Breitbart.com. Um, let's talk about a Supreme Court issue. Uh, and that is the uh, question on, on taxes. And is it the 16th Amendment, right? Yes. Uh, so yes.
2: what's The what's 16th the front Amendment of the court to right the Constitution.
0: Now? Yeah. What's in front of the court and when?
2: Uh, That will be argued at the court this morning, (laughs) so it's a a nice, timely timely segment. Uh, It is – the issue is, look, the 16th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified in the year 1913. Before that, the federal government could not have an income tax. Before that, there are only certain types of taxes that the U.S. Constitution – allows the federal government to impose, things like excise taxes. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so with these taxes, the Supreme Court had tried a form of income tax uh, in the late 1800s that the Supreme Court in the 1890s in the Pollock case struck down as unconstitutional. And so the American people responded, liberal progressives uh, responded, joining together with Republicans, uh, in, in adopting the 16th Amendment to the Constitution that, that allowed for an income tax. Now, back then, by the way, it was minuscule. I mean only, only the wealthy paid any, and the first uh, tax bracket was 0.5 percent. Uh, and, uh, and it's like – and then you know, the more income you make, uh, the higher the, the tax rate. Uh, The the highest rate was something like 7%, which is lower than the lowest rate (laughs) these days. So, But nonetheless, uh, ever since the 16th Amendment was adopted, the issue of an income tax – one of the limitations that the Constitution put on taxes was to require what's called apportionment among the states, like if the state of Indiana – has 5% of the U.S. population, then it's whatever tax you're creating, uh, it needs to be structured in such a way that the people of Indiana are covering 5% of that tax. They have 5% of the population. That results in 5% of the tax. And so the idea was if you tied taxes to apportionment, you give all the American people enough skin in the game that they would be grabbing their members of Congress by the shirt front to say, listen, you better have a good reason for this tax and you better keep it low or you're going to answer to me on the next election day. Right. Uh, the 16th Amendment allows an income tax that is unapportioned, and that's the basis for the income taxes that you and I and all of our listeners you know, have have to pay that we, you know, that we deal with through the year and that we file our taxes on. Uh, every April fifteenth. Uh, one of so the issue is okay, well what are incomes? You know, what 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 sort of taxes, you know, this is obviously a, a very big deal, the, this power. Uh, so what exactly uh, how do you define words like income when you're talking about what it is the federal government can tax you on? And just a few years after the sixteenth Amendment was adopted, in nineteen twenty in Eisner v. McComber uh, the the Supreme Court said that among other things, the issue for one of the issues for what is income is a realization of an increase in uh, it, 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 uh, a realization of the economic benefits of. Uh, gaining in wealth, and that is to say, like if you have a house, your house value goes up, your house value goes down You know, with market conditions. They didn't want to open the door to where if a person's house value goes up, all of a sudden, that could be treated as an increase in income that could get caught up in the income tax. And so you have this, ever since Macomber in 1920, you have this requirement of realization, and that is to say, no matter what it says on paper, about the price of your house, the value of your house, it's not unless you actually sell it, and you know you bought the house for three hundred thousand, you sell it for four hundred fifty thousand. you now have an income of a hundred fifty thousand on that that could That's be course. subject to taxation so It's that, not until you sell it. If your house value debate? goes up to four fifty, but then it drops down to two fifty, you know you didn't get taxed any time during the years that that up and down was happening. That's this 1920 thing. Well, there's this provision in uh, the, the, the big tax overhaul bill, the huge tax, and, uh, uh, tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 that was trying to get the repatriation, the bringing back to America of trillions of dollars – of wealth that was that was being uh, kept overseas, trying to get that money back in the U.S. for the benefit of the U.S. economy, and so it it it, it set up this uh, mechanism for doing so to incentivize, uh, you know, bringing the money back. But in doing so, there's one provision in there that some lawyers are like, "Wait a second, doesn't part of this incentive structure uh, uh, turn on?" Taking certain parts of wealth and making it subject to a to possible taxation, where, where you didn't actually sell anything, so you didn't realize any income, and so you have lawyers who are saying, "Wait a second, does this actually violate the Sixteenth Amendment?" And that's uh, and that is the issue that the Supreme Court is going to hear this morning. I know that's very much in the weeds. Uh, I, I'm I'm not a fan of tax law myself, uh, but uh, but that is uh, but that's what the Supreme Court is this Well, the Court's implication is
0: the, the the result of this could be could be what now now Elizabeth Warren is allowed to tax you based off of unrealized gains for your investments potentially.
2: <laughs> well, that it that is. A question about saying, well, hang on, e- even though this law you know, was, was a conservative law, it was a pro-business law, it was a pro-economic growth law, this is a law that the Republican Congress passed and that President Donald Trump uh, uh, signed, signed into law. So, I mean, it's, it is definitely a conservative law. Uh, the, the question is, if, if this provision is upheld, could that open the door to a Democrat president If Democrats were to also have control of Congress, implementing, as you just said, a form of wealth tax where if you have uh, a farmer in Indiana, to go back to our Indiana example, if you have a farmer in Indiana to say, oh, you own all of these acres, it's worth X amount, you know, we're just going to start taxing away 1% every year of the value of your family farm. And of course, you know, that that that's tied up in the land i mean they it, farmers don't have i'm um, deliberately taking an industry that you know has assets that are very valuable but 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 tend to not have much cash you know, and uh, and basically forcing the liquidation of things like yes. family farms oh, to pay this brutal. so-called wealth tax. Yes, that is the concern that conservatives have. Uh, that that's part of what's driving uh, this uh, this litigation. It's called the Moore case, uh, United okay. States v. Moore, and that's what the Supreme Court's okay. going to hear this
0: morning. You will follow. We got about a minute or so, but uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to serve on the Supreme Court, passed away on friday uh what should we know about uh, sandra day o'connor
2: well justice o'connor deserves more than a minute and a half in in the limited time that we have uh it's uh she was i mean she's a historic effect fig- uh figure uh in in american life uh it is she was a moderate justice uh you know had had her own set of views about what uh she believed that that the constitution stood for for, for more than a decade, she was the, the swing vote uh, on the Supreme Court, uh, pretty much from the time that Stephen Breyer uh, was confirmed to the court in 1994 until Justice O'Connor retired in January of 2006. Uh, it was, in many regards, the O'Connor court. There were so many consequential five-to-four decisions where it was, you know, where will Justice O'Connor? come down on this. Many of those outcomes were conservative. Many others were liberal. She was the fifth vote to sustain Roe v. Wade in when it was revisited in 1992 in the Casey case. She was the fifth vote to change the meaning of the Establishment Clause to the Constitution, that she said anything involving religion in public life, even like a Christmas display in a county courthouse, that all of that uh, violates the establishment clause of the Constitution if a reasonable observer, who's not a real person, just a hypothetical observer, strangely always resembled the judge uh, you know, deciding the case, whether a reasonable observer would think that the government was endorsing a religious message. So uh, uh, all of these uh, decisions that conservatives would disagree with. But on the flip side, also a number of decisions on federalism. On the authority of states versus the federal government, on property rights, on a number of things, where uh, where, where she uh, ha- had a much more conservative view. So she was a, a, a trailblazer. She was a former legislator. She was an Arizonan. You know, grew up grew up as a rancher, a, a fiercely independent uh, person, and uh, certainly someone who had a, a storied career, a, a lifetime of public service. Uh, and uh, and uh, at the age of 93, passed away on Friday.
0: Ken Glukowski, Breitbart Senior Legal Analyst. Great to talk to you, Ken, as always. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Mike. Merry Christmas.
0: Appreciate you. And to you.
1: I'm American made.
0: At the end of today's show we talked with a congressman from michigan about the cars act which would essentially stop biden's ep uh, uh electric vehicle mandates we're going to talk to the other co-author of this bill congressman clyde tomorrow at eight o'clock
1: have a great day